A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Alongside me is commissioning editor, the irrepressibly flat-voweled Thea Lenardutzi. Thea, are you well? Yes. Now, you're going to tell <laughs> us about a positive experience you've had this bank holiday. You went to see, we interviewed Philippe Sand yes. uh, the other day, you went to see Primo Levi. Yes, the full, um, well, it was, I think, five and a half hour long reading, seven hours with intervals. Oh. They were quite necessary intervals. Was as it hard you might imagine. It was, it was very moving and exactly what you would think a five and a half hour reading of Primo Levi's, if this is a man, would be. Some incredible speakers, Liliana Mobiei, who is, uh, she survived the Rwandan genocide, Philippe Sands, of course, A.L. Kennedy, brilliant people. And the good news is, that we will be able to uh, run a, a serialized version of it. So we've got the we've got the all of the audio, and we're going to split it across five episodes. So people will be, be able to who, who subscribe to this podcast will be able to listen yep. to all five and a half exactly. hours. So they can break so, up themselves. Exactly. So as this as this episode that you're listening to now comes out, the five episodes of If This Is a Man will come out as well in your well. One of them will come out in your feed, and the others you'll find all on our website. So do, um, so do that, and, and the music it? as well. Yes, the music as well, because it's re- it's readings interspersed with beautiful music by um, some incredibly accomplished musicians, and they're playing Bloch and Liszt and Klein and um, Mendelssohn, and just all beautiful, beautiful, and and sympathetic re- music. And how did the audience respond? What was it like? At- I was I was very pleased to see that most of us stayed until the end, you know. And it's it's a Sunday night. It's 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 difficult. It's difficult to listen to because if you're familiar with the book, as I'm sure many people are, um, it's it's something it's difficult to 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 relive, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but very important, and it's difficult not to sound very preachy when I'm talking about this. But it's just absolutely worth listening to, yeah. um, and and you can do it in five in five five episodes. Lovely. Well, I'm, I'm so glad, you, and it was you who sorted this all out. I'm really glad you did because uh, it was great talking to Philippe about it. It's clearly a project he he feels very so passionately. Much passion behind it. Yeah, um, all of them. And they got great names, and it's just a great thing to do to 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 read this to this book that you know possibly and give it to a new audience potentially. Mm. Uh, lovely. Well, make sure you are following this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter as well at fbfm underscore podcast. And if you have a moment, please do review us on iTunes. Thea, as we know, constantly gets favourable comments via LinkedIn, but that's I haven't nice. Have any this week? Have you not? No, because you put everyone off. I know. Well, if you if you're thinking of contacting Thea on LinkedIn, <laughs> uh, just review us on iTunes. 
Yes. We're happy with that. You're happy <laughs> yes. with that trade-off? I'd be very happy with that. Fine. Uh, and if you want to subscribe to the TLS, Google TLS subscriptions, type pod1 in the offer code section. You can get six issues for £6. And remember, as a subscriber, you now get the full access to our century-old archive, which includes such delights as Martin Amis getting told off by William Empson for mistakes in his review about Coleridge, which is very fun indeed. Coming up on the show this week... How much do you know about Leonora Carrington, the artist and writer who has slightly been lost in our national consciousness? Well, we'll try and help fill in some blanks today. Lorna Scott-Fox will be joining us to help. Speaking of artists, our commissioning editor Mika Ross-Southall will be reporting from an exhibition showing Picasso's love for bulls, entitled Minotaurs and Matadors, here in London. She's been speaking to the curator of the exhibition and also to Picasso's grandson. Finally, we are living in the age of the me, me, me memoir, the messy confessional. The TLS offices are littered with tales of wild swimming and alcoholism, abuse and redemption. Who do we blame? Jean-Jacques Rousseau, apparently. Francis Wilson will be here to point the finger. If I had to point to a literary genre that was doing well at the moment, I'd unhesitatingly plump for memoir. A memoir with the more me, me, me in it, the better. TLS bookshelves heave with accounts of jaunts across islands or swims in wild rivers or of broken marriages and minds and bodies of physical journeys that swiftly become legitimised as metaphorical ones. Well, where does it all come from? Well, Jean-Jacques Rousseau wrote his famous confession, saying, I've resolved on an enterprise which has no precedent and which, when complete, will have no imitator. As Frances Wilson points out in her review of Alex Verdling's The Rise of the Memoir, he was right about the lack of precedent and wrong about the rest. If Rousseau didn't invent the literary confession, he certainly freed it from formal strictures. I will say everything, he announced, the good, the bad, in some everything. In doing so, he went on to influence people like Wordsworth and De Quincey, Nabokov and Primo Levi. How and why are both good questions, and Francis Wilson is here handily enough to answer them. Uh, Francis, why don't we start with Rousseau and his uh, confessions. Uh, who was he, why did he, he write them, and how did that start this process of, of the confessional memoir? Well, this is very much the question that um, Zwerdling begins with. He says, why? You know, why did Rousseau want to expose himself in such an embarrassing way when he was already, you know, the spirit of the age and the sage of the 18th century? So why expose himself to all his readers as this lying, swindling git? And so... <laughs> That'd be a good thing to have on the blurb, wouldn't it? <laughs> the know. confessions of a lying, swindling git. I would buy that book. I know. So he's fascinated by the perversity of the drive to write memoirs. And what he's done in this wonderful book is he starts with Rousseau and then moves straight into the 20th century and looks at six of Rousseau's descendants and says, you know, all of them have followed Rousseau in exposing themselves in shameful and embarrassing ways. And they felt this urgency to do this, kind of do this crazy thing and also a resistance to it. So they've written very, very slowly. Give us some names. Who are these people that have, that have embraced their inner Rousseau? He starts off with um, Edmund Goss, father and son, which is uh, 1907. And he says that this is the birth of a whole different kind of memoir as well. This is the family memoir. 
And Goff was the first person to really go against that whole kind of honoring thy father and thy mother. You know, that, that m most important commandment. And, uh, and we've all followed him swiftly since. You know, the number of memoirs that people write about their parents now. But, um, but Goff was the first person to really anatomize that relationship between father and son. And then he moves on to um, Virginia Woolf and her extraordinary essay, Sketch of the Past, where right at the very end, she reveals the, um, the sexual abuse she had from her brother. And then he talks about Orwell's, um, George Orwell's essay on bedwetting at, bedwetting at prep school. Such, such were the joys. And then he talks about Nabokov's speak memory and then primo levies if this is a man and the truth and ends with maxine hong kingston's warrior women and chinamen so he takes us from very private memoirs to kind of com communal experiences so we, we end up going from rousseau in the 1790s and we leap straight on to the early 1900s what happens in in the interim there well, it's kind of a risky thing he does because everything happens in the interim. So at first I was quite shocked and thought, but you know, the sort of, he's, he's skipped the whole adolescence of memoir. He's given us its birth and then taken it to its adulthood, if you like. But he's in skipping the romantic period, for example. You know, he, um, he doesn't give us the Quincy Confessions of an English Opium Meeting, and he doesn't give us um, Wordsworth's Prelude, you know, this kind of enormous kind of bit of this autobiographical, uh, autobiographical poem. And he doesn't give us any of the Victorians. So, we, so in, skipping this, in skipping this sort of this century, he takes a huge risk, but it works. And I can't describe why it works, except that everything he does is so elegant. And does he make the case, though, that, I mean, that was Rousseau on the minds of these writers, do you think? Do you think it's a, it's, it's a fair assertion to make that this is Rousseau's hand reaching from the past to guide their pen? He doesn't argue that these writers have even read Rousseau. So he doesn't say that, you know, they're haunted by Rousseau and that Rousseau is somehow kind of um, contaminating their prose at all. He just says that Rousseau is there in the me, you know, he's a kind of Rousseau's there in the air. Although he does, Rousseau does figure in, in Wolfe's uh, journals, doesn't he? Yes, I think, I mean, um, Wolfe read everything. Yeah. But, <laughs> but I have to pick you up, Stig, on something that you said, because uh, when you talk about it as a genre, one of the things that um, Zwerdling argues, and he says this very, very briefly, he says he doesn't think that memoir is a genre at all. Mm. He says it's an experiment in progress still. And he says that you can't describe memoir yet as a genre because there, are no, because there aren't any legitimate expectations to memoir and it doesn't yet have a canonical base and which I think is um that's interesting but what do we mean by that that's really interesting because I, I would say it's a genre it doesn't need a canonical base does it because it, in a way it has a it has a form now a um, very yeah. modern form as we, we all know what we're talking about where we you know wild swimming and people who talk about their fathers and their mothers uh, misery memoirs there's, there's a whole sense yes. of people pouring out themselves for the purposes of of writing a book is that not a genre well, I think that memoir has got a can canonical base now, and we can describe a canon of good memoirs, and he's given us yeah. one. Yeah. Well, in now, a this sense... is the canon of memoirs, but what he said that memoir doesn't have yet is, um, and will never have, and this is why people like writing memoir, this weight of tradition and expectation. He says that, you know, people can do what they want 
with memoir. It's still a kind of, it's still a work in progress. It's a form in progress. Well, exactly. So you would say, I mean, it's a form with genres to it in the same way that poetry, poems, are they're, they're a form and you can have the epic poem or, or the lyrical um, poem, an ode or whatever. So it, yes. that, I suppose, is a difference. I, I'm interested to know why you think that confessions happened when it did. In, in, the, in the context of, of forms and genres and whatever, why do you think then was the time for this kind of writing to flourish? I wondered whether it had anything to do with the rise of the, the Bildungsroman, which was around the same sort of time, I think, and, and that took a very different approach to life. And, and oh, how life no, happened. I think that's absolutely right. I think, um, no, I think it did very much. And also there was this, there was a kind of egotism in the air. This was a kind of the great age of the self. Well, the sort of post-enlightenment invention of the individual, I suppose, is the same time, isn't it? You know, there's a defined I starts to develop. Yes, that's right. And one of the things that um, that, uh, that Rousseau does that Swerdling has an enormous amount of fun with is stress his individuality all the way through. I'm made unlike anyone you've ever met. And he goes on and on. Nobody is like Rousseau. And what's kind of ironic about this is the reason everyone loved Rousseau, the reason that the Confessions took off is because everyone identified with him so much. We're all individuals, just like Rousseau. It's that, that, Monty, that Monty Python thing. Yes, we are all individuals. <laughs> You say also, um, we go back to the 20th century, uh, with the rise of the memoir comes the demise of the personal pronoun. Yes. Um, which I'm very struck by, So, because you could actually argue that now, these days, there's the, the I in memoir is very, very visible. The personal pronoun is everywhere. What happened in the 20th century? Did everyone get coy? Yeah, well, this is something that um, Swerdling traces as well. I think it's absolutely fascinating. He looks at the way in which um, um, 20th century um, um, memoir writers, and he distinguishes here between memoir and autobiography, um, are fantastically nervous about the first person and tend to write in the second person. And so he, uh, he quotes, for example, someone like, like Orwell writing about kind of bedwetting at prep school. He doesn't say, you know, I was bedwetting. He says, you were bedwetting. <laughs> you were taken away from your childhood home and placed into a school. And he, he says that um, Swerdling looks at the way in which writers became fantastically embarrassed by individuality and by the eye and wanted to always make the experience communal and he said that this is a move he traces in memoir from Rousseau's kind of there is no one else like me to Primo Levi's actually everyone is a bit like me and what's happened now though do we do we carry that course onwards to the return of the personal pronoun or am I just am I just sort of misjudging the the the, the, the egotism of the age now but it feels that we're now back in the realm of 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 me 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 yeah, the age of the snowflake. Yeah. Now, I think that's right. I think we are back with me, me, me. But I think that memoirs only work if you start off from the commonplace. No, we are all like this. My story is your story. And end up with the unique. You know, you've, my story is actually my story. It's completely individual to me. And otherwise, there's um, hesitantly no appeal in uh, no appeal in buying someone else's story. You may as well just write your own. And who then, on a f- on a final note, would you say Rousseau's current heirs are? I mean, am I wrong in thinking that it's it's a it's a field particularly populated by women and especially American women at the moment? Mm. 
I'm not sure who writes. It's well, so I'm celebrity of... based now, isn't it? No, exactly. I'm, it's just no, showing off. No. It's just showing off. <laughs> no, I'm thinking of Eula Biss, who who we published very recently, and yeah. Leslie Jameson. These are people who use the eye more or less obliquely, so the eye figures, but only as a a way to look at something else. But is that not journalism? Is that not more journalism than memoir? Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a strange hybrid. I think. Did you mention Rachel Cuss? No, but yes, Rachel Cusk. Yes, I think Rachel Cusk quite possibly. I mean, she uses... If memoir, um, memoir should be fearless and take high risks. And that's exactly what her first-person writing does. But then it becomes a cliche. It becomes a cliche where you just try and find the most marketable illness or condition or tragedy yep. in your life and 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 hammer it. And that's that's how it can be com- corrupted. This notion of Rousseau kind of warts and all approach then yes. becomes this strange. Let's try and commercialise the biggest wart that I have and hope that enough people think either because they have the same one or they're kind of. Uh, interested yes. in, in, in sort of go- gaping at it. That, 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 it's yes. easy to be pervert what Rousseau is trying to do, isn't it? Maybe the whole of the internet is doing what Rousseau tried to do. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's there's so much self-writing now. I mean, Facebook is a form of... Oh. It's a form of memoir, isn't it? And everyone, everyone is kind of mem- uh, recording their lives on an almost kind of minute by minute basis now. And if I was talking, I was reading something actually where it, when you were a young journalist twenty years ago, you were told keep yourself out of it, write yes. what you see. That's how you convey honesty and you convey importance. And now I think a young journalist or a young writer would be told. Stick in your childhood trauma. Put your put yourself into this. I want some eye in this, and that's, that's exactly a that, that's right. a that's a real change, isn't it? Yeah. So thinking about Mad Girl. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's absolutely right. It's always bring yourself into it now. And do, are we going to blame Russo for that? Just finally. <laughs> you determined to level blame. Yes, I, I want to yes. point a finger at someone, Francis. You're going to have to give, give me a name. Give me a name to blame. Let's blame Russo, and he'd be pleased to take the blame as well. I'm sure that's. Yeah. Well, 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 listen, uh, Francis, I'm, I'm very struck by your idea as the internet is now Russo. And I'll just re- quote again the good, the bad, in some everything, which is, of course, a very good description of the internet. Yes, that's right. Yes. Uh, Francis Wilson, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. Thank Bye. you. Yeah, I'm interested that, that, that you think it's the sort of American women. I think that's journalism, not memoir, though. I think. I think we've got to a stage where there's an in between, there's a hybrid form going on there because it's not all journalism. It just doesn't feel like it. It feels like essays. It feels like. I'm very it feels like memoir. And, and maybe my problem is I'm disparaging it because I, I think that it's become a cliche. You know, we you know we both know what we're talking about with, you know, the time I went walking the paths of Dorset and I learned about my mum <laughs> is kind of, you know, and you could, you could re-characterise that with any form of journey and any form of familial tragedy. Yeah. It's become cheap. Is it, am, I, am I just grotesquely cynical or has it become cheap? In well, I think insofar as you're... I am you're, you're, you're incredibly keen to find labels and fix those things, it seems, today. <laughs> and indeed, and indeed ever. <laughs> Whereas I think, I think so when I'm talking about someone like Ulibis or Leslie Jameson and, and, and you're arguing that it's more journalism than, yeah, than, than memoir, I'm, I'm very happy to accept that it's both. Yeah, I think and that that right. is why we're talking about memoir as a form rather than a genre. It's something that is still mutating and, and, and you know. And actually the great example of that really is Speak Memory, which is this fantastically beautifully written 
memoir that plays with with perspective and time and and all of that it's not a it's it's not a straightforward yeah you know, I, I was born at an early age type thing it was it's it, it it moves around and it has artistic purpose and that's why i was wondering about about the connection between the rise of the bildungsroman the coming of age fiction work of fiction and and this uh confession style uh writing because the former is all about an arc and a start, a middle, and an end, and progress, and, and you can you can follow it as a coherent thing. Whereas what we're talking about here is this new thing, whereby everything happens at the same time. Nothing is more important than anything else. Um, high and low, uh, you know, it's just as relevant that he had a glass of milk as that he his mother hit him. <laughs> yeah. So you're now doing it. I know. Just, I just think I've just put my subconscious out there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. It's terrifying. This, this is the thing. I, I now expect to see listening. a confessional book in two years' time about your struggles well, you, with milk drinking. and. and <laughs> you would be too scared to have a child in, in the context of all of these memes. Well, the, you can just imagine a child of seven sitting there making notes as you, as you have, a, have a meltdown. And you think, well, that, that'll, Mother that'll, didn't praise me enough. Yeah, that, that'll play well in 20, 20 years. It's terrifying. Well, I'm glad it's a, it's a really fertile area to discuss. There have been so many exhibitions of Picasso that it's all but impossible to find a new way of approaching the work, of imposing order on this oeuvre that could come to seem chaotic, were it not for art historians enthusiastically labelling and delineating. In this part of the show, we'll be attempting just that, as we head to the Gagosian Gallery in London, where a new exhibition, Picasso, Minotaur and Matador, examines Picasso's career-long engagement with bullfighting imagery and the ancient rituals and narratives of his native Mediterranean. Our very own Mika Ross Southall took a walk through the show in the company of Sir John Richardson, Picasso's friend and biographer and the curator of the exhibition, and the artist's grandson, Bernard Ruiz Picasso, who we hear from later. Mika began by asking Sir John about the context of one of the earliest paintings in the exhibition, Portrait of Paul, painted in 1925. People always liked the idea of having the, you know, the eldest son painted by a great painter, and, and Picasso was the great painter, and so he did his wife love this painting. I mean, it is so proud of the sun. And it has a slightly... It's rather conventional compared with most of his work of this period. But this was done, I think, very much for the the family. This is what conventional families had. The the eldest son was... um, And it's a gorgeous painting. But it's far and away the earliest painting in our show. What struck me in the show are the two blue minotaur paintings done in 1937. Yeah. The same year as Guernica, one of Picasso's most famous paintings, which is about the Spanish Civil War. And here, in the first one we're looking at, and they're actually positioned opposite each other in this show, the minotaur seems to be rescuing an almost mermaid-like female in the sea, or perhaps kidnapping her. And then in the one opposite, painted in December, a minotaur is doubled over, stabbed through the chest with an arrow. And there are females in a boat looking at him. Did they do it? Obviously, they're not exactly what was happening in his life. But no, I think he seems... Because his mood changed all the time, and, and sometimes he sees himself, because he's involved very much in these things, in a sort of lyrical way, in an angry way, in a... In a he sort of sets up a scene. He loved life on the, on the south of France on the beach. And so often he, he, he recreates that. And he's different kinds of... He appears in different guises. Sometimes he's, he's menacing. Sometimes he's the victim. Sometimes he's 
He's have a, a, a comic figure. I mean, he sees himself in different roles, mm. and he sees everybody else in different roles. And according to his own feelings, but also what was going on in the world. I mean, because in the late 30s, I mean, there was sort of tragedy and, 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 and all kinds of horrors. So there's very often sort of under the, the comedy, there's a sort of sadness or a sort of a feeling of that danger was about to strike, indeed, which it did was so. And I mean, I think that in some of these, um, you feel that very, very strongly. I mean, they're not, they look as if they're, they're having a jolly time, but there's a sort of slight sort of hint of menace and, and there's usually something sort of something troublesome. I mean, they're, they're not utterly joyous and, and having a jolly time. I mean, there's, he's brilliant at the way he sort of, he hints at a, a sort of a darkness. Do you think that they relate to Guernica? They don't relate in, in compositionally, or they don't relate. I mean, it's the mood, the, the mood, the composition, or the subject uh, relate very much to Guernica. So Picasso had infamous relationships with women, but there aren't actually many depicted in this show. And when they are, they're sea creatures or terrifyingly misshapen, yeah. like in the one we're standing in front of now, Minotaur Ephem. Here, the woman blends into the background almost like pieces of furniture stacked on top of each other and in the foreground is a minotaur. Well, it's he and Dora Maher. They've just arrived at this hotel. They, they did a rather sort of scruffy hotel they used to stay in, in the south. And so Picasso sees himself as the minotaur and Dora Maher, his mistress at the time, is really seen as nothing at all. I mean, she's, she's a bit of fabric. And you see, there's no body there. I mean, there's, there's sort of fabric the, the arms are sort of like sort of a bit of chiffon in the wind, you know, and the face is not a face. And I, and I think... You almost that, have to squint to see that it's actually yeah. human. Well, you, well, except it, she's, the, the dress and the, and the fact he, the, he's the, the um, minotaur there and with his horns and so on. And they've just arrived in the south of France in, the, in this hotel. And uh, this is the balcony outside there, the little hotel they stayed in. And there they were. Here, so here we are, and um, <laughs> they're in the south. He's ready to bathe, you know, swimming, and leading a sort of um, Mediterranean life. And then she's, but she's sort of, whether she was in favour or not, concentrating rather too much on her clothes. But here she's nothing but fabrics. Why do you think that Picasso associated himself with a minotaur? Well, because he's a Spanish cult of the bull. I think he felt this very strongly, and this, this feeling emerged in, and, and in a whole lot of different ways. I mean, it's not just the Minotaur. I mean, it's all the bullfight paintings, all kinds of images of, of, of the bull. I mean, the, the Minotaur is just one, Im, one of the different images which derive from his obsession with, with the bulls. It's important also to, to say that Picasso depict uh, many different uh, things and it's why that's why we can we can do many exhibition uh, on uh, uh, on Picasso we can take one Picasso's work and we can include it actually not because we like it but we can include this specific work in 20 30 40 50 different subjects and that is crucial in the understanding of Picasso that of course, he is a minotaur, but it's also uh, 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 defining what is human nature. 
how human nature can be strong, wonderful, beautiful, uh, and also uh, uh, fake, wrong, uh, awful, terrible. And, uh, and also Picasso's, uh, Picasso creation show that in the 20 and with his uh, uh, life and with his new ma mistress, Marie Therese, and then Dora Mar, he kind of betrayed his statement of having a wife, being uh, creating a family, being with a wife. And he was in, in that uh, surrounding of uh, psychoanalysis. He did transform himself in a, in a minotaur because he had no other way or place to go. But that's one of the, of the reasons of that exhibition, which uh, intend to show who is Picasso, who is that guy, what it is he is doing. And you actually, in the past few years, have released private family photographs and a few home movies, some of which are in this show. And so they're now for the public and also for Sir John when he was doing his mm -hmm. biography of Picasso. How do you think home movies and family photographs, which are very intimate, add to the experience of Picasso's artwork? Well, first, because we uh, believe we, we don't are sure always, but that is, he is a photographer. He is the one uh, taking the movie. As a modern artist, already in 19th century, Rodin or Brancusi later, uh, uh, Menardo Rosso would uh, take photograph and use photograph as a tool to achieve their creation, being more conceptual in a way, not going like the impressionists in the, in the countryside and, and painting what they see or interpreting what they see. So Picasso, early uh, 20th century, uh, used photograph and photography as an instrument. I have to say we did with uh, Sir John Richardson an exhibition specifically on that subject, Picasso and photography, uh, uh, two years ago. And so Picasso had that kind of modern uh, attitude with, uh, with media, so with photograph, with film, and he did uh, uh, nourish himself with it. He never paints really with a model in front of him. Picasso paint or create with his memory, so, so, so photographs are important uh, elements for him. We see in some of the films here him painting very consciously on yeah. glass or yeah. perspex to a camera, and he seems almost like an entertainer. Yes, because uh, some, uh, uh, some famous uh, movie director or uh, photograph artist uh, will ask him to show his talent and to interact with the public. So, so it's also, it is also a very modern way to, to go to the public, to show to the public uh, uh, what an artist does. And finally, is it difficult living with the immense legacy that your grandfather left behind? Well, I, I found a, a lot of uh, joy being able to work uh, with his art, not only uh, what belongs to me, actually, you know, uh, of course I did inherit uh, an important part of his estate, but that's not really the question. The question is that I dedicate most, most of my time in uh, showing uh, and uh, uh, making research on, on, on Picasso, uh, and his art, doing exhibition, uh, 
it did become my profession to work on art and on Picasso specifically. So, so I don't find that uh, hard or heavy at all. And that was Picasso's grandson, Bernard Ruiz Picasso. Picasso, Minotaur and Matador runs at the Gagosian Gallery, Grosvenor Hill, London, until August 25th. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Leonore Carrington was born in 1917 and died in 2011, something of a stranger in the land of her birth. From the 1940s onwards, she lived in both the US and Mexico, and the latter country is perhaps most closely associated with her work. It was to there she fled following the end of her affair with German surrealist Max Ernst after he was interned in 1939 as a hostile alien, and she was forcibly hospitalised by her parents. She's a striking figure in the surrealist movement and someone who was deeply conscious of gender issues, which influenced how she painted and wrote. Lorna Scott Fox has reviewed in this centenary year a new biography by Joanna Moorhead, a collection of scholarly essays and reissues of a novel and the complete short stories. Leonora Carrington, it would seem, is unquestionably back. Lorna joins Thea and me now. Uh, Lorna, what do you think Leonora Carrington is, is best known for now? And is that the same of what, as what she should be best known for now? I think Leonora Carrington is still, though she's better known now, is still best known for the very beginning of her life and the the, the rather mythic situation of her her love affair with Ernst back in um, back in the late 30s and the dramas really of her perhaps her madness and escape and her paintings I think are are well known as a they're mystical and esoteric and very they have a renaissance brightness to them and for a lot of people i think they are known as as places of mystery and occult signs and symbols that are to be deciphered and i think a certain sort of person in particular likes that very much 
Uh, perhaps she ought to be known better, though she was almost invisible for the last sort of, 50 years of her life. She ought to be known better as perhaps a kind of philosopher who, through her paintings and writings, tried to work out some kind of understanding of life and death, of reality, of what it was all about, really. And she did this very much off the beaten track in a, in a pre-feminist way that is now beginning to be picked up on, I think. Explain that to us, because how important a figure is she to feminism? You, you make an argument that, that sex certainly plays a considerable role in her art and writing, as does, just, does gender. I think, yeah, feminists are discovering her only now because, because her books are not actually terribly easy to read. Uh, I wouldn't say that sex was that important. In fact, a very surprising thing is that after the intensely erotic relationship with Ernst, she actually rather gets rid of sex. All the figures, all the female figures in her paintings have got great robes on. There's never anything erotic. They're all after knowledge or mystery. They're all stirring cauldrons or running across landscapes. And she didn't really, I don't think, allow herself to be erotically taken over after Ernst. And that's because, well, there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, it is really because of that great watershed in her life that um, being in love with Ernst led to, drew her to madness in the end, and he became just another, perhaps, oppressive father figure like her own. You point there to her reaction against patriarchy. Can you give us a sense of how how that becomes manifested in, in a very in a very varied works, from from the painting to the writing? Well, that's one of the most visible things in her early stories, which are absolutely extraordinary. I mean, I think only the debutante is well known. That's been anthologized fairly, but there are some others that are really about, they're full of hatred and satire and desire for liberation. And the father figure, the authority figure in all those is very, very negative. Now, what is, there are, there are various forms of liberation, even through violence, through, through the loss of self, through the dissolution of self. That it's very fairy tale like very, very dark, very gruesome. As also and, and also very funny, but the, almost the one consistent thing in there is the rejection of male authority. And of course, ironically, when she um, with Ernst, he actually patronised her very much as a femme enfant, slightly uneducated, he thought, you know, with a with a direct line to the unconscious and to magic and mystery and something slightly mad. And that was a you know a surrealist trope of the time. But when she did have the experience of madness, I think she had to put all that, all that behind her. But she continues to look for a female principle in her writings and in her, and in her paintings um, in a way that I think is much more interesting than just the rejection of patriarchy. It becomes much broader and it becomes male principle against female principle, order against chaos, the plan against something fruitful and unnameable and constantly shifting. She seems. She seems to me, in in some ways, to be almost. I mean, not the missing link as such, but a, a link between someone like Mina Loy and uh, Angela Carter. Yes, I would say so. Yes, you can find. I mean, now now scholars are, are doing it like mad, and you can find all sorts of links with with later with later writers who often were not aware of her, because I think, in a sense, a period does throw up um, certain certain similar searches. But hers were especially uh, philosophical in a way. She did uh, 
from a very young age. She, 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 she went to ancient wisdoms and systems, astrology, the Kabbalah, Jung, Gnosticism, Celtic myths, and tried to sort of mix all these up to find out some kind of truth that made sense from a female point of view and that were against against was quest rather than conquest as somebody said and her imagery is not all that expressive in content of that unlike angela carter's which will actually feature a lot of, of very narrative stories of myth in leonora it's all quite um passed over in a way you just see figures and symbols but not exactly narrative intensity as you find in the stories and novels it feels Intensely modern, what you're you're, you're talking about th- this approach, and indeed to a sort of modern sense of what feminism is. Um, it, it's all therefore, in a way, seems surprising that that Leonora fell so far away from our collective consciousness. Is it, it, why did she fall away? And, and is are we about to see in the next few years the return of her uh, as a serious cultural figure? I would think so to some extent, but it's also quite difficult because her. Her most philosophical writings are, uh, at least uh, I find, rather hard to read. Um, things like uh, The Hearing Trumpets, which she wrote incredibly early on, again, like in the 1950s or the early 50s, which is a great epic of, of search for wisdom, starring you know, a, a mad old lady and a few cats, and, but it goes through a search for the Holy Grail and reincarnations of Hecate and the Snow Queen and, and the kind of Gurdjieff figure called Dr. Gambit. And it's very funny, but it's not actually, you know, it's not a great page turner. What a, what a, what a title as well. I mean, <laughs> yes. who, who could possibly come up with, the, you call it a comic apocalyptic novel, it's called yes. The Hearing Trumpet. Yes, that's because she, uh, it starts off when this, when this woman is given a hearing trumpet and through it she can hear her son's plotting sent her off to an old people's home which is what happened, then all the old people you know, have, have these amazing adventures. And so it's very funny. I mean, humour saves it a lot, but one absolute, it's very hard to look, to get, through the, to get through the philosophical bit because she deliberately mixes up everything. And that's what I think is rather brilliant about her. She's anti-system. She uses all these systems, but she mixes them all up to, to get somewhere else and to, and to, and to uh, in a sense, puncture portentousness and and authority but the result is 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 genuinely chaotic and in a sense it's not it's never going to be very popular stuff um because it's hard it's hard it's hard going (laughs) it's hard to read it is very there are a lot of capital letters you know there's the door the ram the the king and and uh, a lot of symbolic happenings and you do feel that everything stands for something nothing's really of its own and though her her humour is wonderful, and the ordinariness and the drollness of, of of things that happen all the time, is not always enough to to make one feel one knows quite what's going on. She's she's been better sort of preserved is probably the wrong word, but she her legacy is is better preserved in um in Mexico, isn't it? She's she's quite an important figure there. I, I that's where I first came across her. She did that mural in in the yeah. Museum of Anthropology. Yes, she is. She's very loved in Mexico. I mean, something yes, astonishing about her in general is how loved she is by everyone who knew her, for her humour and her modesty and her. But in, her, her place in Mexico is very interesting because she is. She was so reclusive, and in Mexico too, she doesn't. I mean, I feel partly that it's because of what she describes in Down Below, the memoir of madness, 
when she talks about having thought herself to be the center of the world, a person who was appointed to save the world, and that it was all in her stomach and she had to cleanse everything and, and everything pointed to her. I feel that she was somehow just did not want to take um, a forward seat anymore, and all her research was extremely secret. So that mural, uh, she did, yeah, she, she, she did that, but it's a, it's a very oddly non-Mexican mural, and, and, and she was bewildering to the Mexicans because she didn't really embrace, like many other Europeans did, she didn't embrace Mexican myth and magic. I mean, this was a place that Andre Brito himself had said was the most surrealistic place on earth. But she just went on with her very European, oh, her Western stock, her Western archive of wise systems and didn't really adopt Mexican myth. Well, it's, it's interesting as well in terms of the political engagement or, or not, as the case may be, because there's some discrepancy over, over, over the dates of her movements. I think yes. in uh, the biographer of Joanna Moorhead, she says that she has her leaving Mexico in 1968, which was obviously a, a very important political moment in Yes, Mexico. after the repression, well, after the, the, the massacre of Tlatelolco. Yeah. She got very scared and, and, and sort of cleared out of it. Also, I, I believe there was you know, some trouble at home. None of it's very clear. Everybody is so discreet around yeah. Leonora that, that it seems quite extraordinary. The more recent times, are there is very little known about them. But she wasn't in Mexico all that much. And Marina Warner also confirms that you know she kept meeting her in New York and Chicago. She wasn't around all that much. And she sort of ended her life living in a in a in in a kind of a basement apartment, was it? She called herself the old mole, which yes. I think is charming. Yes, well, that was something. Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm interested in in her in her earthiness. I love that about her. Yeah. That she that part of her feminism, I think, is that she was attracted to the earth, the moon, the darkness, rather than the sky. And, you know, the male celestial principle. You know, she, she refused to fly. She always took the bus to the United States. <laughs> um, and, and I think very significantly, the place of aspiration when she's in that awful sanatorium is called Down Below. That was actually the good pavilion where you had decent meals and, and you wouldn't be tortured. And, she had and, an extraordinary... I mean, I get the feeling, talking to you and, and reading your piece, that and you say that people loved her. Mm. She, she seems very striking. So often when you read about her life, you think, I'm not entirely sure I'd have got on with her, but it seems with, with Leonora that that's not the sense you get, that people liked her and she kind of lived her life by her own principles and, and she took decisions based on that rather than a sort of urge yes. for fame. It's, it, it all seems rather laudable, this. Oh, yes, absolutely wonderful. I mean, her lack of self-promotion, her, her complete concentration on her work and on her own searches, um, her modesty, her, yeah, her privacy and her absolutely strong independence and following of her own path in every way, you know, ever since about 1940, is, is, it was really quite extraordinary. And I think she was totally unpretentious, not proud, did not compete on the, for the artistic scene, didn't publish, you know, very much. I'm sure there's more writings there that haven't been found yet. Um, and lived a you know very unknown life in the states too. Apparently, her her gallery, the Brewster Gallery, had to pay her rent half the time. I mean, she just lived, kind of lived underground. Is a very good symbol of it all. How do you think her? Just just finally uh, on this, Lauren, surrealism has a sort of. It doesn't age very well necessarily as a, as a movement. I think it's no. kind of of its time, and you look at it now, and it, it doesn't quite have the effect it probably did when it first appeared. How, do, how have her paintings aged? Because her paintings possibly are the things that people most associate with her. That's most of what people know, yeah, the ones who don't think that she's Dora Carrington. 
I think, well, no, the whole surrealist issue I find very interesting because there's a part of her, though she was too young, she had a natural affinity with it as soon as her mother gave her a copy of Herbert Reed's book, Surrealism. And I'm sure they encouraged her, she was still quite young, and they encouraged her in, in to think and write and paint in this way. And there are some elements of surrealism I think she keeps. It's like the graftings, juxtapositions, the metamorphoses, you know, the the sort of jolts that are supposed to defamiliarize you and to, you know, get the unconscious going. Um, that she keeps. And she also, strangely, always considers herself a conductor or a conduit of her visions, which is a very surrealist thing, again, especially that women, even more than men, would just like wait for it to, you know, could wait for it to flow in because they had this special connection with, 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 with the mystery and the unconscious and the dark side and all that. But when you look at her experiences, she also, I think, transcended that in many ways or built on it. Because objective charts, she was then more interested in mechanical charts. Because objective charts had turned into, in fact, paranoia, seeing patterns and correspondences everywhere, all aimed at her. So that was the end of objective charts. Convulsive beauty was another surrealist idea. Well, she really had it with cardiozole, that's the, the drug they injected her with that gave her convulsions. Would you explain the mechanical point again? What's, so what, is, that, is that what she ended up with? You In a way, yes. I think it's because there's a... She, 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 she both mocks Gurdjieff's mechanics and geometries while engaging with them, not half as much as her friend Remedios Varro, whose mind was always that of an engineer anyway. But um, Carrington's surrealism is more organic. Forms turn into animal and plant forms rather than into geometries and machines. But she's interested in the machine because I think she's terribly interested as a non-humanist. That's what I like most about her. And she says, she says that there's a wonderful line she says uh, in an interview in 1996. She says, everything has mind, this table, this cloth, a glass. I believe this consciousness is a thing and that we are like devices or apparatuses that receive and emit messages and can break down, I suppose, like a radio. She, she absolutely believed that there was a kind of universal consciousness going on, and and she was not a humanist in any way. She, she thought that humans were just one form of being that could or receive or emit, and in a sense, that is not uh, that's something very post surrealist. Yeah, it's, it's again. We'll have to leave it there, Lorna. But it's again another example of her modern. It feels very modern. It feels very it feels very avant garde in the sense of you know still something we we need to grapple with in the future. She would have been very interested in modern um, investigations into plasma, electricity, mm. the ions that possibly can you know conduct consciousness all around the universe. Yeah. Those ideas, because she was so interested in science, and I think she would have really responded to that kind of idea and to other other forms of post-humanism. That's important. Lorna, thank you very much indeed. That's Lorna Scott Fox uh, talking about Leonora Carrington. Thea, you've seen this thing in Mexico. Yeah, I mean, two years ago. Can you explain it? I don't don't know how many people listen to this will, will... Someone said to me when I was talking about Leonor Cancer, oh, oh, the paintings look a bit like 1970s album covers. Yes, sort of. Um, there's, uh, that, there's that strange soft focus um, feel to them and pale colours. And I mean, I can't really remember. I, I remember the expanse of, of, I think there were some temples and some ruins off in one corner. And then there are these kind of orbs. And there are some sort of Mayan symbols because it's supposed to be, um, it's called El Mundo Magico de los Mayas. So it's supposed to be you know the magical world of the mayas um and 
And yeah, I mean the colours I remember and the, and the softness of it. She's a, the, we've got a, a good the end of the dawn horse is one we've we've got in the paper and it's it's almost impossible to to describe but it's a it's a sort of androgynous figure sitting on a chair on tiled floor while a hyena kind of dances yeah and a, a rocking horse floats in the air while outside an actual horse is running away I mean it's a, it is it's very strange and, and the horse figures throughout her work both in both media both both um, paintings and 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 um, her writing it feels she's due a comeback it really does because well, a, mean, a lot of this stuff we were talking about it does sound intensely sort of postmodern almost yeah really. i mean i always i always wonder and i always hope with these things and i referred to mina law when we were talking to lorna just then because every now and again you know every five years there's a new uh woman modernist who is rediscovered and everyone says this is you know this is really worth check this is going to change the the canon and and blah 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 and it's just it's so difficult to keep that momentum going. Yeah. And, you know, there was a retrospective at the, at the Tate Liverpool for Leonora Carrington, uh, and there has been a novel in her name by Elena Poniatowska, who is a Mexican grand dame of, 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 of letters. So, uh, yeah, you hope that this is now, you know, the, the, the final... The final and me- punch. And you mentioned uh, Angela Carter. Interesting enough, next week in the paper, we have Claire Loudon uh, having a pop at Angela Carter. Uh, Interesting. Saying how it's all just rehashes of wolf stories and uh, it's nothing to get excited about. Wow. I know, controversial. We'll, we'll talk about that next Tune week. Tune in for that one. Yeah, we'll talk about that next <laughs> week. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Francis Wilson, Lorna Scott-Fox and our very own Mika Ross-Southall. Do go to the tls.co.uk. I always say do go to the www. And Thea and our producer Matt laughs at me. Uh, for <laughs> so sounding 90s. like For sounding like a... Uh, <laughs> Uh, an old man. Is it on the internet? Is, I interviewed I interviewed a writer <laughs> once who, who is an old lady, and she. I said, oh, "Can you just give the website?" It was a charity thing. It was on the radio, and she goes, "Yes, I'll just give you the website." She went, "Http <laughs> colon." Well, you're that, only one little bit away. Basically, from I am that person. <laughs> yeah. So when I'm describing the TLS website, I need to just say the dash tls.co.uk. I would yes. Do go to the-tls.co.uk to see this week's edition of the paper, which has an African theme, including a piece which is very good by Peter Thonerman on the tall tales around people who saved books from Muslim extremists. I have also reviewed the new Romeo and Juliet at The Globe, which, spoiler alert, is hand-gnawingly grating. It's dreadful. (laughs) It is really dreadful. Uh, I'm not saying about the review. The the play certainly is. You can make your own judgment about the review. Uh, You can tweet this podcast at FBFM underscore podcast with your comments and suggestions. And Thea, next week, scandalously, is away. Yes. Hang your head in shame, Thea. Where are (laughs) you going? How long are you going for? I'm going for 10 days and I'm hoping... 10 days? Yeah, I'm hoping to walk from St Ives to Falmouth. Is this a memoir? <laughs> yes, I'm going to find myself oh my God, and my mother at it and, and my father. Yeah, and I'm going to drink milk. Yeah, and it's all going to be oh my, so it's really going to be revealing. it's going to be the milk drinking walk. <laughs> we're going to see, honestly, we're going to see this in. in and are you missing two podcasts or one? Uh, just the one. Just the one. That's good. So, well, don't worry. Our token northerner quota will still be maintained. <laughs> Arts editor and indie pop star Lucy Dallas will be in. Thea's chair. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.